You are listening to the Campus Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen. Each Wednesday on CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, I welcome a new guest from Queen's University to discuss news, issues, upcoming events, initiatives, and services for the benefit of Queen's students, faculty, staff, and alumni. Thanks for tuning in to this podcast, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another fabulous edition of Campus Beat. I'm your host, Dinah Jansen, and today I have the great pleasure of welcoming into our virtual studio, Professor Christopher DeLuca, Faculty of Education and Associate Dean of the School of Graduate Studies here at Queen's University. Hello, Chris. Hi there. It's great to be with you today. It's wonderful having you in the studio with us. So, Okay, we've got a lot of ground to cover. You recently co-wrote a really fascinating article in The Conversation entitled, University Admissions Tests Like the SAT Are Under Scrutiny, Especially in the Age of COVID-19. I'm looking forward to talking quite a lot about admissions testing and where it's going. Um, But can you tell us about yourself and your research in the Faculty of Education first? Yeah, sure thing. So um, my work in the Faculty of Education really is about uh, assessment more generally than testing. So I'm interested in how teachers work with students to measure and support their learning through assessment. So thinking about how they have conversations with students to get at what they know and what they don't know and how they can better support them and how they might then uh, use that information to communicate with parents um, and to enrich the learning environment. So it's really about enlarging what we consider assessment um, Mm -hmm. beyond testing um, to think about it really as a learning device and a learning uh, opportunity uh, for teachers and students. All right. So going back to maybe your own school days, how did you go into the academic side of education as opposed to becoming a teacher yourself in secondary or primary schools? Yeah, absolutely. So I was actually doing my Bachelor of Education here at Queen's, and I took a, an elective course in assessment, educational assessment, taught by Lynn Shula, um, who was a fantastic professor and uh, now is, is a retired professor. Uh, and she got us to do an involved project. It was a portfolio assignment where we had to look at a, a special topic around assessment. Um, and I recall focusing on assessing students with exceptionalities. Um, and out of that, uh, she worked with me and she invited me to co-author a book chapter on that topic. And so I began to enter the world of what it was like to publish and research in the area of assessment and educational research. And that was a whole other branch of the educational world besides teaching. And so that piqued my interest and uh, you know, got me along that pathway. And so while I continued to explore teaching, I uh, you know, pursued my master's of education and then later on my PhD. And, and, now, I'm, and now I'm a professor of education uh, <laughs> back at Queen's. So you, know, you come for full circle. Amazing. And thank you for that. Uh, it's sometimes helpful for students to learn. How did, how did somebody move from this point to this point? It's great to hear from you on that. Thank you so much. So before looking at your co-written article with Don Klinger and Louis Vellante, let's talk about entrance exams. And to my knowledge, we don't have SATs or ACTs in Ontario, but most universities and colleges in the United States and other countries, including the UK and New Zealand, have equivalent exams. Uh, Besides a benchmark score required for admissions into college and universities, what do tests like SATs and ACTs actually measure? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, first off, it, it is important to know that we don't typically use the SAT or the ACT um, in, in Canada, although some, some programs do require other external uh, large-scale assessments. What we do have in Canada, however, is provincial testing, um, and we'll get to that probably a little later on. Okay. When we're thinking about the U.S. or the, the U.K. Or, or Australia, New Zealand, or other contexts that do use the SAT um, or similar kinds of tests, what they're actually measuring is um, uh, math, reading, writing, and logic um, in general ways. And so when you actually go to the websites of these tests, uh, testing companies and, and for these tests, they're actually um, looking at those various uh, disciplines and, and content areas and they, and they express them in terms of what is the real world knowledge you need to have in those areas to be successful in university. So they really are using these as predictive measures to, to universities for admission decisions so that they are selecting applicants that they can have confidence will be successful in their programs. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the promise. The, the question is, is that promise fulfilled? Indeed, indeed. Okay, so how are these uh, types of testing uh, different than the senior level subject exams high school students uh, might write in Alberta, British Columbia, maybe even right here in Ontario? Most students in these provinces achieve a particular score as well. How does it work? Yeah, that's right. So this is going back then to the difference between the SAT, for instance, and our provincial testing programs that we have in Canada. Yeah. And in Canada, as you know, each province has its own educational system. And with that educational system comes a large scale assessments or province wide testing. Um, so in Ontario, we have the EQAO, which happens in grades three, six, nine and ten. Um, and in Alberta, they have a similar structure, but they also have, for instance, diploma exams in a series of subject areas. Okay. So they have a diploma exam in biology and math and English. Um, and for them, those diploma exams count for 30% of the student's final grade in that course. So when you're thinking about going off to university, that final diploma exam is accounting for a fairly significant part of your entrance requirement uh, for admission decisions um, in, in Alberta. Um, it's different for BC, for instance. They did have diploma exams. Now they're phasing them out. They're moving more towards what we have in, in Ontario, which is um, in Ontario, we've got the grade 10 literacy test, which is a requirement to graduate. So you can take the grade 10 test. And if you fail it, you can take it again. If you fail it again, you can take it again. If you fail it again, you can take a course instead. So there's multiple opportunities for success. The key there is just passing the test. Mm -hmm. It's not linked to any one specific um, uh, grade or, or course. Um, the difference then between provincial tests and the SATs is that they tend to be linked more to our, our provincial curriculum. So more closely tied to what those students are learning in classes, mm -hmm. where that, those SATs or ACTs are broad reaching um, aptitude tests. So okay. they may, or may not link as well to what those students are learning in their classrooms. Indeed, indeed. Now, the co-written article in the conversation that you did with Don Klinger and Louis Vellante, it noted that Yale, Cornell, and Columbia universities, among others, have announced that they will not be requiring SAT or ACT exams for fall 2021 applicants, and that even before the pandemic, entrance exams have been under increasing scrutiny, even by some of these super hard to get into Ivy League schools. So can you break it down for us? Why the scrutiny? Where is it coming from? 
And has this been ongoing for a while or is this something relatively new? Yeah, so I mean, entrance exams have, have a great allure, you know, it's an efficient way of uh, accepting students and it, it makes it look like a very fair, transparent process. Everybody writes the same exam and those with the top scores get into the school. Um, the challenges and the mounting evidence around them is that there is some bias around um, the, the exam scores and different cultural groups, different genders, um, different um, students from different socioeconomic backgrounds who write these exams. So we're seeing a, an unfair representation of performance on these exams. And if that's the case, what we actually have is unfairness um, coming through in our admission process. And that's the exact opposite of what these prestigious schools and frankly, any school wants to promote in their admission process. So this was going on before COVID. COVID has just also added a spotlight to it, I think. Um, but certainly it's, it's been a trend uh, for a while now. Okay, so as you've just suggested, and your article uh, explicitly states too, some observers say that testing provides an objective metric upon which students are evaluated. However, the article also indicates issues of bias in testing, which is defeating its purpose, really. Can you break it down a little for further for us? In what ways do entrance exams influence racial and cultural bias? And conversely, how might these biases influence entrance exams? Mm -hmm. What's That's, happening there? Yeah, so uh, what's happening there is a, is a couple pieces of the puzzle. So at, at a group level, we are seeing trends where some cultural groups are, are outperforming others on these various forms of large-scale assessments. Mm -hmm. And so that raises concerns around fairness. At a personal level, some students who might not have the same um, background or uh, economic provisions to prepare for these tests or write them in the same kinds of ways, particularly now with remote conditions for writing or having to travel in some of these contexts to testing centers, which are really far away from students, um, they don't have the same provisions to actually be as successful as some of their counterpart students. So the issue here is your performance is not at all based on your knowledge of the content, but based on all these other social cultural factors. Mm -hmm. And so the test is now measuring all those other factors versus your knowledge of the math, the reading, um, the logic. Right? Okay. So we have a very skewed perspective on the performance of these students. Okay, so it sounds like uh, some students have uh, greater access, for example, to tutors who might be able to mentor them to not only just learn something to pass a test, but also really understand a particular topic, which is a completely different level of learning, a deeper level of learning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting. If you go on the uh, SAT website, for instance, or the ACT website, most of what's on that website is all about prep courses, prep materials. So there's a huge industry, uh, you know, multi-million dollar industry around preparation to be successful on the test, which means that those students who have the economic resources to participate in that industry will have a greater aptitude to be successful on that test in some ways or mm -hmm. potentially be successful on that test, right? Um, more, um, more opportunities to learn the skills to be successful on that test. Um, and so that's one area in which we see some differences in, in potential performance. Um, and there could, be, could certainly be others as well. Okay, all right. Now, it, as the title suggests, uh, 
things might be changing, especially regarding scrutiny in the age of uh, COVID-19. In what ways has COVID-19, the pandemic, actually accentuated equity issues and disparities with university admission testing, if at all, but it clearly has. Yeah, it certainly has. Um, and not only with admission testing, but assessment generally in schools and testing. We even see it here at Queen's with how we are now needing to move to proctored exams. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, at Queen's, you know, you think about an exam that would otherwise take place, you know, in a, in a building and a classroom on campus is now being invigilated by Examity, an external company that we are paying at Queens, right, to invigilate and proctor our exams, right? So mm -hmm. you have testing companies coming into the educational landscape to actually moderate some of these processes. Um, so that's, that's one way that it's changing is the involvement of testing companies. But other issues, particularly around equity, is that the student needs to have solid internet connections, right? If they're mm -hmm. in remote environments, that might um, be concerning. Um, and what we are noticing around the COVID um, context is greater uh, issues with well-being and anxiety. And we know testing outside of COVID is already an anxiety-provoking context. Layer on COVID-19, mm -hmm. and, and you've got a recipe that might not uh, work very well for many students. And so we need to be able to support students in that, and, and being at a distance from those students makes it even more difficult. Can you break down some of the arguments for and against common metrics upon which to compare students for admissions eligibility? Uh, why does a mathematical test score hold higher value than teacher assessments? Yeah, so there is um, a real lure of objectivity when it comes to a test. We look at a test score of 89% and we say, yes, that means something, and it means something different than somebody who gets a 90% or 92% mm -hmm. without uncovering um, that there's a whole bunch of bias or subjectivity that goes into how those test items were constructed, how they might be scored, or how they might be interpreted. Um, and so there is a general perception that they are more fair and that they are more reliable. The question we probably want to be asking is, are they valid? Do they represent the kind of learning um, that we think is most important for university success. And so when we think in contrast to teacher assessments, so what is it that teachers are doing in their classroom and are they capturing that learning in their assessments, um, would we trust that evidence um, as maybe more representative of the skills and knowledge that students need to be successful in university? Um, that's a question that people sit on different sides of the fence on. Um, I tend to be more of the value of teacher assessments, uh, but others would, would certainly stand behind the value of, of a standard metric. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more on that about teacher assessments. And uh, let's hear more actually about teacher assessment literacy and the role of teachers and the tools that they use to make assessments about student achievements and preparedness for university. So mm -hmm. what is teacher assessment literacy and how are teachers becoming literate themselves? Yeah, absolutely. So teacher assessment literacy is, is sort of a fancy way of talking about the professional skill that teachers have to assess students' learning. Um, and so teachers, um, and it, it's alongside all the other skills that teachers use in a classroom, right? And so teachers are, as they are instructing their students, they are getting to know the, that student. They are knowing their baseline of of knowledge and their baseline dispositions, and then they are tracking the students learning from where they start 
to where they end up in their classroom. And to do that tracking, they're using a number of things. They are doing testing is one piece of the puzzle, but they are also engaging in conversations and observations. They're naming and noticing the learning and they're collecting that information um, in, in a series of time points. So rather than this high stakes one time point test like the SAT, we are collecting a body of evidence that's based on multiple indicators and that uses a variety of, of different sources of, of student knowledge. So we're not only resting on a test, we're using a variety of, of different assessments. And then the representation of that can look quite different. So if we are wanting to talk to parents about what that student knows, we can have a conversation with them, or we can do um, a documentation wall, or we can um, show them in a report card, which is obviously the most common way. If we want to communicate that to universities, we might construct a report card grade but there's different ways that achievement gets reported on then. Um, so I think there's a lot more flexibility when we actually rely on teachers' judgments and teachers' expertise in this area. The one challenge we need to be mindful of is really supporting our teachers in this practice. And, and that in the research is an area that we need to continue to focus on. So what are the best ways of, of engaging professional development for teachers so that their judgments are reliable and that they are valid and that they are also not biased because that's one of the major concerns around teacher uh, assessment literacy is the subjectivity piece of it. Okay, so there is this other concept in the article also called teach to the test. Uh, what is it and why is it problematic for genuine learning? It goes back to what we, talk, we were talking about a little earlier, but let's flesh this out a little more. Yeah, so teaching to the test, uh, also known as washback, is this concept where when you have any test that has a high stakes consequences like university admission, like a scholarship attached to it, that that becomes the main goal of your classroom teaching and learning. And so all teaching and all learning focuses on what is on that test and we strip away anything that isn't um, emphasized by the test. So all of a sudden, if the test is focusing on literacy and numeracy, in my classroom, if I'm the teacher, I might not do arts-based instruction. I might not play up as much the physical education components or social studies. I'm going to focus mostly on math and language, and I'm going to mainly use the kinds of formats that are represented on the test. So if they're doing multiple choice, I'm going to use multiple choice. Well, all of a sudden, I've narrowed the experiences that my students are are gaining in my classroom and then learning has become a lot less interesting it's disengaging many students um, and it's and it's certainly not as fun okay uh, I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more too uh, about we talked about issues of equity already but can we dig down into some issues of accessibility we do know that while many teachers have different teaching styles there are students that have different learning styles and also learning abilities how does testing complicate admissions, for example, for students with different learning abilities? Yeah, absolutely. So testing obviously values students who perform well on tests. And this is another idea called test wiseness. So students who perform well on tests or who have the, not only the skills or the content that is measured on the test, but also the skills of how to write a test. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, are more successful. And we've seen this time and time again in the research. And so students who um, have issues with, in many cases, tests have a high reading ability, have issue with reading or paper and pencil formats, um, are gonna not maybe perform as well on tests. And so you automatically in that form have a bias, not because of their content knowledge, not mm -hmm. because of their reading or math ability, but because of the form of assessment. Mm -hmm. And so what we always wanna do with assessment is we wanna eliminate any effect that, that the assessment has, any error the, effect, the assessment has on their performance and really emphasize what is it that they know and are able to do and really try and get a true representation of that. So uh, you're picking up on a really important piece and, and why we actually wanna maybe emphasize teachers uh, classroom assessment practices because teachers classroom assessment practices will give that student multiple opportunities and the teacher will know the student and be able to say, you know, I know this student has issues with a high reading assessment. So I'm going to actually change the form of assessment and give them all these other forms. Mm -hmm. It is important to recognize that um, many of the large scale assessments and provincial testings that we have do provide accommodations for students who, who have formal accommodation requests. But we also know that there are students that maybe are not formally identified, but also maybe are struggling with some of those learning skills um, and test taking skills. Okay. Do you have advice for parents who might even have young school aged children now, but maybe some uh, high school aged children? What advice might you have for parents and their children in terms of thinking about and thinking ahead towards uh, towards writing exams when it comes to trying to enter this or that university. Yeah, so I think that it's important to differentiate Canadian context from many of the other contexts because we don't emphasize um, large scale external exams in the same way in Canada in many provinces. I would say that uh, parents in, in the Canadian context would be wise to work with their teachers to really support an enriched um, classroom assessment environment. And by doing that, we diversify the learning that the students are experiencing and that they will perform well on their classroom assessments and the assessments that are uh, linked to the curriculum that they are, they are learning. Um, and so we'll be successful on those, the assessments that are tied to those curriculum in the Canadian context. If you're outside of the Canadian context and you're writing large scale assessments that are maybe not linked to your curriculum, then you're having a, a slightly different conversation. Then there might be a more strategic approach to, to acing those exams. But that's why some of those universities are moving away from them. Okay. And so lastly, yeah, here's your hot seat question. What's your take? Do you think the SAT test scores are reliable measures of whether a particular student has the necessary knowledge and skills to succeed through four years of university? Yeah, so I would actually change the question. Okay. I think it's uh, the question, the important question is not are they a reliable measure? I think they're a perfectly reliable measure. They consistently measure student performance. The question we should be asking is, are they ethical to use? Are they fair to use? And do they validly represent student learning? Um, and my response to that is, <laughs> I think we could uh, use alternative measures and rely more so on what teachers are doing in their classrooms who are closer to the learning and closer to the students to get more accurate representations of what students know and are able to do. Amazing. Thank you very much. And thank you for correcting the question. Awesome. Not at all. It, you know, it's a common question that most people would ask.
Okay. All right. So thank you very much, Christopher DeLuca, professor in the Faculty of Education and Associate Dean of the School of Graduate Studies here at Queen's University. We've been talking about the conversation article that Professor DeLuca has written with Don Klinger and Louis Vellante entitled, University Admission Tests Like the SAT Are Under Scrutiny, Especially in the Age of COVID-19. Professor DeLuca, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. And welcome back. You are now listening to The Scoop. I am Dinah Jansen. The Tea Room at Queen's University has shut its doors as of November 13th and will remain closed until the end of the academic year. The Tea Room, operated by ENGSOC, otherwise known as the Engineering Society, reopened its doors on September 28th after a lengthy closure beginning in March 2020 due to COVID-19. When it reopened, the Tea Room resumed operations throughout the fall on a takeout service basis only. Engineering Society President Spencer Lee told the Queen's Journal that the Tea Room operations have unfortunately become untenable because of the continuation of remote delivery of classes at Queen's Remote delivery will continue at the university through the remainder of the academic year, while winter temperatures and weather conditions provide additional challenges to the tenability of takeout service delivery. The journal further reported that all staff, except for the head manager, have been terminated and, according to Lee, processes exceeded all regulations and obligations set out in the Employment Standards Act. Lee also told the journal that the tea room will reopen as soon as it's possible. And in other news, on November 18th, the university's library system here at Queen's has expanded COVID-safe study spaces from 150 seats bookable to a maximum of 32 hours per month to 244 seats between Stafford Library, McCory Hall, and the Education Library for up to 60 hours per month. Students are reminded that they must clean all booked areas before and after each use and that face coverings are required and physical distancing measures are in place at all three buildings. Spaces are monitored by Queen's student constables at all times. Students are required to show their student card, their booking confirmation, as well as their COVID-19 self-assessment accessible through the Queen's secure application. Students may book study space at any of the three locations by visiting library.queensu.ca. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.